a volunteer meditation instructor for Columbus KTC. And um, on Sundays when Lama Kathy is away, uh, we devote our Dharma talks to selected Dharma books. And um, our discussion uh, that we've got underway is on a book called The Seven Points of Mind Training by Kenshin Trangu Rinpoche. And um, this book is a manual of Mahayana Buddhist practice. And it, it's, um, it's a book that tells us how to practice on the cushion. And it also tells us how to practice off the cushion in post-meditation. Specifically, this book tells us how to practice the two kinds of bodhicitta and achieve Buddhahood. And when we talk about the two kinds of bodhicitta, uh, just to put it very simply, we're, we're talking about practicing and generating loving kindness and compassion and wisdom. So those are the two bodhicittas. Um, the author of this text is um, Trungpa Rinpoche, and he's an eminent scholar and recognized meditation master in the Karma Kaju tradition, which of course is our lineage here at Columbus KTC. And I should say that this book um, is available online in PDF format. So um, the store doesn't have any uh, copies because I don't think there are any copies. Um, it's online, but um, it's free there. And uh, uh, if you um, Google seven points of mind training, Trangu Rinpoche, uh, you will find it very readily. So the sources of the teachings that are contained in this text, the mind training teachings, are the sutras, which are the recorded words of the Buddha, and the shastras, which are the commentaries by masters uh, who commented on the Buddha's words. And these mind training teachings were collected by a great 11th century master Indian master by the name of Atisha. So he collected and, and collated and uh, digested these teachings. Now, uh, the last time we discussed this book, we talked about the first point of mind training. And, well, we said the, the title of this book is The Seven Points of Mind Training. And what that is referring to is seven major topics of mind training practice. And so last time we talked about the first point, and this morning we're going to talk about the seven second point. But uh, the first point um, was all about the preliminaries. And these preliminaries are practices that we do to make sure that we are uh, a proper container, if you will, for the practice that follows. And so we discussed last time about uh, what these preliminaries are. So in these preliminaries, um, we do a number of things. 
if you were at yesterday's shamatha retreat uh, at the Center for Pragmatic Buddhism, uh, you, uh, we practiced all of these uh, preliminaries. So we begin with refuge, uh, taking refuge. Uh, then we practice a brief guru yoga. Then um, we contemplate the four thoughts that turn the mind to dharma. And then we conclude with breath meditation, which is uh, a container for shamatha, or calm abiding. So those are the preliminaries. And we discussed those in, in some detail last time. Um, our topic this morning is titled Arousing Bodhicitta. And so here we're talking about the second topic of the seven topics of mind training. And this is the main mind training practice. So when we're talking about arousing bodhicitta, that's what mind training is all about. And the main practice is, as we said, arousing two types of bodhicitta. The first type is called ultimate bodhicitta, and the second type is called relative bodhicitta. So today, we're going to talk about the first half of the chapter, which is devoted to ultimate bodhicitta. So um, before we get started, let's follow our tradition of chanting together the short prayer of refuge and bodhicitta. In this prayer, we generate the wish to attain Buddhahood and liberate others. And we also take refuge. We take refuge in the Buddha, or we could say awareness. We take refuge in the Dharma, or we could say truth. And we take refuge in the Sangha. We could say love and compassion. If you don't know this prayer, please join us in your heart, thinking that we're going to listen to the teachings, contemplate them, meditate, and bring them into our life in order to benefit others as much as possible. Sanje chodang so ki chognam la jang chu bardu dagni kyabsu chi dagi jin so chi pe sunam ki Dro la ha pen cheer, Sanje Druparsho, Sanje Chodang Soki Chognam La, Jang Chu Bardu Dagni Kyabsu Chi, Dagi Jin So Chi Ki Dro La Ha Pinchir Sanje Druparsho Sanje Chodang So Ki Chodnam La Jang Chu Bardu Dagni Kyabsu Chi Dagi Jin Sok Chi Pe Sanam Ki 
Drola Pinchir Sanjay Drupasho. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so, um, in our chapter, uh, Trangu Rinpoche begins by noting that the main part of the main mind training practice is concerned with bodhicitta, which we were just saying. And bodhicitta is a Sanskrit word that means mind of awakening. And Trangu Rinpoche says this is the mind that wants to help all sentient beings achieve complete happiness. Um, another way of, of defining it is to say this is the mind that wants to attain enlightenment and liberate all beings from suffering. But they're both, in those statements, we're saying the same thing. As we said, there are two kinds of bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. And Tranga Rinpoche says that ultimate bodhicitta is generally considered more important than relative bodhicitta. But for beginners, in the mind training teachings, relative bodhicitta is actually considered more important. So the reason for this is because ultimate bodhicitta is very hard for beginners. And so the idea is that as we develop relative bodhicitta, this naturally leads to ultimate bodhicitta. Kempo Kartha Rinpoche has a really great way of describing the process in which relative bodhicitta leads to ultimate bodhicitta. And again, we could be saying the way love and compassion leads to wisdom. Kempo Rinpoche says that practicing relative bodhicitta softens and opens us so that we can be able to realize wisdom. So to realize wisdom, we have to be soft and open. So the main practice of the seven points of mind training begins with ultimate bodhicitta. And the idea here is that we begin with ultimate bodhicitta because it stabilizes the mind. And once our mind is stable, this means that relative bodhicitta will be more clear, steady, and progressive. So it sounds like we're contradicting ourselves. We just said relative bodhicitta is really the beginning point for all of us. But the way we practice formally is to begin with ultimate bodhicitta. So I think it's safe to say that as we begin the practice of ultimate bodhicitta, we want to give ourselves time, relax, and be patient with ourselves. Because it could be that we might not get it at first, but that's OK. So even if we have trouble with ultimate bodhicitta at first, relative bodhicitta will actually develop a stronger intention 
to develop successful ultimate bodhicitta. So these two feed each other, and even if ultimate bodhicitta, even if we're not quite getting it at first, it doesn't matter because as we practice, um, relative bodhicitta feeds ultimate bodhicitta. So how do we train in ultimate bodhicitta? The short answer is that we begin with analytical meditation and we conclude with placement meditation. So what do we mean by analytical meditation? We're doing a particular form of analysis with analytical meditation. And it's not some sort of logical analysis. What it is is clear looking. And so with analytical meditation, what we're doing is actually engaging in looking at how things really are, apart from our ideas about how things are. So we're trying to see how things really are. And this isn't accomplished by thinking about how things are. It's accomplished by looking for ourselves and seeing what our experience, our personal experience, tells us. What is the feedback we're getting? What, what do we see? Now, um, the result of this analytical meditation, this looking or analysis, um, we're giving you the, the answer right off the bat. Um, what we do is, when we look to see how things really are, the result is that we find that nothing truly exists. Now, this might sound kind of odd, so uh, I want to just take a moment to um, expand here and say that for something to truly exist, it has to be permanent, it has to be unchanging, it has to be unitary, and it has to be independent. So those are the requirements for something to be real and truly inherently existing. But when we look at how things are, we find something very different. We actually find the exact opposite. When we look, we see that everything is actually impermanent. It's constantly changing. It's composed of many parts. And everything is interdependent. So in other words, when we look, and really look for ourselves, instead of seeing things that are truly existent, we find something very different. And Trunga Rinpoche has a great way of using Buddhist jargon here. He says, what we find is that everything is a, de a dependent arising. Everything is a dependent arising. So, Let's talk about analytical meditation in, in some detail here. How do we do this? Um, the seven points of mind training is set up so that we use slogans uh, and contemplate these slogans, work with these slogans to practice. And um, this is what we have in The Great Path of Awakening, Lama Kathy's favorite book. Um, if we've spent any time with this book or listened to teachings by Lama Kathy, 
um, we've encountered these slogans. Um, Trungpa Rinpoche's slogans are translated a little bit differently, but it's all based on the same uh, text. So um, let's begin by talking about the first slogan that's all about analytical meditation. The slogan is, and we're calling it a slogan, but really it's, it's an instruction. It says, regard all phenomena as dreams. So regard all things as dreams. And here, what we're doing is using an experience that's familiar to all of us. Everyone in this dream room, I'm guessing, uh, has experienced dreaming at some time or another. And um, so we're taking a familiar experience to illustrate the real nature of phenomena or things. So we all know that when we fall asleep and dream, we experience people, we experience places, and we experience objects. And we also experience reactions to those things. So we have emotional responses to what we're experiencing in a dream. So when we dream, that all seems very real. But when we wake up, we see that those dream experiences weren't real at all. Everything was just a dream or an illusion. So this contemplation, regard all phenomena as dreams, or regard all things as dreams, is inviting us to entertain the possibility that the experiences of our waking life are no different from our dreaming life. So again, we're talking about looking at our experience. And if we look at it, we see that we have, we experience external people and objects, and we experience internal mental events. Um, we have thoughts, we have emotions, and so on. And what we're saying is, whether it's external or whether it's internal, their nature is no different from a dream. So um, let's take a moment to contemplate this together. And this may sound like a stretch, but really, um, we can do, do this right here in this room. Let's think about how we are all experiencing this room. Um, we, we, uh, we can see that um, we have a room with people and furniture in it. Uh, we have uh, a really effective air conditioner running. Uh, we have someone sitting here yakking at us. But um, if, we, if we look at all that, we can see, at the very least, how our experience of this room, right here and right now, is impermanent. Can everybody just take a moment to look at how all of this experience, and again, we're, we're not talking about, we're not saying this room isn't here. We're not saying this room exists or doesn't exist. We're saying, what is our experience of this room like? And uh, I guess I'm inviting you to 
look and, and see if you can, at the very least, see that your experience of this room is impermanent. So let's just take a moment to do that. How would that be? Did everybody have a chance to get a, a brief taste of how, how our experience of this room is impermanent? We can go a little bit further. We can also see how our experience of this room is mental and indi individual to us. So again, we're not saying that this room is out there or isn't out there. What we're saying is our experience is our experience is mental and individual. So when I look at uh, these maroon cushions, I'm colorblind, so my impression of these maroon cushions may be different from your impression of these marine, maroon cushions. And that's what we're talking about. We're all in the same room, but we're all having a slightly different experience. We're all having an individual experience, and it's a mental experience. So let's um, just take a moment to think about how each of us is experiencing this room in our own particular way. So does that make sense to everybody? Does, uh, okay. So again, the idea here is that we're training ourselves gradually to see the world as if it's the very same as a dream or illusion. And um, we can add something here, which is that it's important to recognize that we're not projecting dreamlike qualities onto our experience, that actually the qualities of our experience are dreamlike. It's just that we're not used to looking at them that way. So in other words, we're not imposing this description. This is how things really are. And that's why the slogan is, is saying, look at things in this way. So the nature of things is already dreamlike before we start talking about it or, or looking at it. That's just the way things are. So that's the first slogan or the first instruction on analytical meditation. And you know, it's in, uh, advising us to, to look at things like this when we get the chance, when we can, to, to really look at things this way. So this brings us to the second slogan in our analytical meditation. And the second slogan is, examine the nature of unborn awareness. Examine the nature of unborn awareness. Now, this is taking us through a progression. We saw while contemplating the first slogan how things outside of us 
are like a dream or illusion. And hopefully we saw how things inside of us are like a dream or illusion. So that's what we did during the first contemplation of the slogan. So the question now is, how about the mind that experiences these things outside of us and inside of us? The slogan is saying, examine the nature of unborn awareness. So it's asking us to think, think about, well, how is the mind that experiences this dreamlike experience that's internal and external? In other words, is the mind itself real? We've kind of said, well, when we're sitting in this room and looking at this room, it's not really, our experience is not of something truly existent, it's dreamlike. And our internal responses to this room are not truly existent, they're dreamlike. But what about the mind that is having these internal and external experiences? Is the mind itself real? So to answer this question, we contemplate this second slogan. And so let's do this together. Uh, we'll, I'll sort of talk about this slogan, and we can all try this. So again, what we're asking everyone to do is to look at how things really are, look at our own personal experience. And so the question I want to ask you is, where is the mind it experiences? We all want to take a moment to really look and see where is the mind that experiences? What is its location? We've all been told that our mind is in our head, but that's just hearsay. That's not our own experience. So we need to look and see for ourselves where is the mind that experiences? So let's just take a, a moment to do that. So if we look, is, is it in the head? Can we really locate the mind in the head? Or some cultures think the mind is in the heart. Is it there? Or is it in another part of the body? Or is the mind outside the body? Where does the mind start? Where does it first appear? Where does the mind linger? What's the mind's shape? What color is the mind? What are the mind's dimensions? If we really look, even though we've been told that the mind is in the head, the result of our looking is what has been called a not finding. We look and we don't find anything. So in the words of Trangu Rinpoche, the mind has no birth, no abiding, 
and no cessation. In other words, we can't see where the mind starts, we can't see where it rests or abides or stays, and we can't see where it ends. And this is why the slogan refers to um, unborn awareness. It's, we, can't, we can't see where it begins, so it's unborn. So that's the second slogan. The third slogan of our analytical meditation takes us even further in this progression. With each of these slogans, we're taking a step further. And this third slogan is, even the remedy is freed to subside naturally. So what we're saying here is that in the previous contemplations, we came to some conclusions. We concluded that outer experiences are empty. We concluded that inner experiences are empty. And we found, when we looked, that even the mind itself is empty. We didn't find anything. So now we're taking a further step. And we're saying, now we have to let go of even that thought, that particular thought. Even the remedy is freed to subside naturally. Okay, great. Uh huh. No, that's fine. Uh, so, what we're saying here with this third slogan is thoughts are not things. They're not truly existent either. And we can see this when we look at thoughts, they just disappear. So even the one thinking this thought, whatever this thought is for each of us, that's empty too. So again, we're going through a progression. We're, we're starting with the first slogan, and we go on to the second, and the, then the third. And it's taking us to a place where as it says, even the remedy is freed to subside naturally. Now, these three steps in our analytical meditation bring us to placement meditation. We said we begin with analytical meditation and we conclude with placement meditation. And the instruction for placement meditation is found in our fourth slogan. And this fourth slogan is, rest in the nature of all, the basis of everything. Now, Trondra Rinpoche explains that the instruction, rest in the nature of all, means we rest in Tathagata Garbha, which is a Sanskrit word that means Buddha essence or Buddha nature. So, how do we do this? The answer is we simply relax and rest in clarity and simplicity. So let's take a moment to try this step, this placement meditation. Let's just take a moment to quietly 
rest and relax. And we're just resting in clarity and simplicity. Okay, thank you. Now, when we're practicing analytical and placement meditation, when we're sitting in placement meditation, when thoughts arise, we just briefly dedicate the merit, and then we start over again and begin the process of analytical meditation. So we can do this actually again and again. So that is, um, that's analytical meditation and placement meditation. But throughout the seven points of mind training, we talk about two stages of our meditation. One is formal meditation on the cushion, and the other is post-meditation, or meditation throughout our daily activities. So after our formal practice, Throughout the day, we practice by following uh, our fifth slogan for this morning. And this slogan is, in post-meditation practice, be a child of illusion. And what this means is that in our daily life, we foster the feeling that everything is like a dream or illusion. So again, we're returning to that. And Trying to think like this during post-meditation supports what we're doing during our formal practice on the cushion. How to practice ultimate bodhicitta. And what we're doing, the reason we're doing this is to gradually develop the awakened mind that sees the emptiness of phenomena. That's not how we normally see things, but that is our, our path and our goal. And as we said, wow, that's noticeably better. As we said, um, practicing and understanding ultimate bodhicitta helps with our practice of relative bodhicitta and vice versa. So these two feed each other. So if we can see things, if we can practice analytical and placement meditation, this helps us with relative bodhicitta. And if we've, uh, if when we practice analytical and placement meditation, we kind of don't get it, that's okay because our practice of relative bodhicitta will gradually help us get there. So in plain everyday language, what these instructions are all about is helping us develop compassion and wisdom. And 
compassion and wisdom are the qualities of a Buddha. So our goal is Buddhahood. And by practicing and developing compassion and wisdom, that's how we become a Buddha. So let's conclude by doing a guided meditation together. Let's begin by um, relaxing and settling the body and mind. So let's take a nice deep breath, uh, breathe way down into the abdomen. And as we breathe out, we can simply place our attention on the breath and just watch it dissipate into space. We can do this a couple times. Now, breathing normally, let's place our attention on the breath. And when we breathe in, we know we're breathing in. When we breathe out, we know we're breathing out. So we want our attention to just follow the breath or ride the breath as we breathe in and as we breathe out. Next, when we exhale, let's imagine sending all our happiness, well-being, and positive karma to all sentient beings. When we inhale, 
let's imagine we're receiving the unhappiness, suffering, and negative karma of all beings, and they're being relieved of it. As all of this negativity merges with us, we imagine it dissolves into nothing. So let's practice this sending and receiving for a few minutes. Let's completely let go of the visualization, the sending and receiving, completely relax, and simply rest the attention in awareness and spaciousness.
Okay, thank you. So we have a couple minutes for uh, questions and comments. And uh, Ron has the microphone set up. So if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to step up to the microphone. I couldn't hear the fifth instruction. Oh, okay. What's that? Be a child of illusion. Illusion. The idea is that we're, we're born out of illusion, and so all of our experience is illusory. Alright, that was, Jesus, one. yeah, that was a good teaching. Um, I wanted to share this before I get into my question. Okay. Um, I was watching a show on Bruce Lee, and he said, a genius can see logic at the subconscious level. Their logical subconsciousness is not distorted. So that, that kind of blew my mind, and I expanded on that. And I said that, so the ultimate goal is to try to balance subconsciousness with the dream state of mind with consciousness, the awakened state of mind to kind of balance them to like a yin-yang. And it, it, it kind of went on with this, with your conversation. Um, so my question kind of leads to, you know, like the, the Buddhist wheel, yeah, our symbol, and the middle of the wheel, um, if you picture that being as the mind of the universe, like the, the thing that controls everything, is even would the mind of the universe be freedom itself would it is is that in our mind that like is that is it an illusion of our mind that we try to we want to solve everything we want to know the mind of the universe at what keeps everything intact or i don't know yeah. it's kind of a deep question that's a big question it's a good question um, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, we always talk about the two realms, and there, there's the realm of the absolute or the ultimate, and there's the realm of the relative. And of course, um, we also talk about the, the four kayas, or bodies of the Buddha, um, the, the Dharmakaya, uh, the, the mind of the Buddha, or the absolute, the um, Sambhogakaya, or the the um, the bliss body, which is um, sometimes said the speech of the Buddha, but it's it's the um, uh, exp the body of enjoyment and communication, and then we talk about the Nirmanakaya, which is the the um, 
uh, form body or manifestation body or emanation body. And um, so it's sort of the body, speech, and mind of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth kaya is the swabhavika kaya, which is the union of all of those, which is described as the body of things just as they are. And so in the, in the four kayas, we're kind of describing the nature of things, the way things are. Yeah. Um, and we're looking at it from the point of view of the highest or the absolute. So it's kind of a top-down view rather than a bottom-up view, if you will. Can you explain, expand more on that? Like, I wish I could. Because <laughs> <laughs> even that's kind of mind-blowing, like, to, yeah. to look at it from a, a above view. Right. Yeah, you know, I, my, my problem is um, we're, we're, um, we're talking metaphysics, kind of, and all I know is meditation experience. Okay. And so as soon as we start to talk metaphysically, you know, <laughs> I, it's, it's, all just, it's all just theory in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, all, all I know about is meditation experience. So, and I, you know, I can talk from that experience, but as soon as we get into this stuff, I can tell you what the teachings say, but, you know, I'm a dunce with, with that stuff. All, right. I, I, all I know is meditation experience. Cool. Well, thanks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you do. Hey. So what Buddha family are you a member of? No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I heard you talking a lot about an ultimate and relative bodhicitta. Um, what I didn't hear, and maybe I just missed it, what, could you just review the definitions of ultimate and relative bodhicitta? Yeah, yeah, with... Did you, did you mention that? I didn't yeah, uh-huh. Oh. Basically, when we're practicing ultimate bodhicitta, we're, we're practicing the development of wisdom. Mm. And when we're practicing relative bodhicitta, we're practicing the development of loving kindness and compassion. Yeah. What is the reason one is called relative and the other one is called ultimate? Wisdom is, is about understanding the ultimate and relating. We can relate to things from the standpoint of wisdom or the standpoint of compassion. I, and, you know, ideally we're relating to things with both, but as beginners, Triangle Rinpoche says we need to practice compassion. compassion. Right. And that will lead to an understanding of wisdom. But an understanding of wisdom supports compassion. Some of this is review for me. What, what is the connection between realizing ultimate bodhicitta through relative uh, bodhicitta. There's a connection there, and I forgot what it was. 
the connection is that if we understand emptiness, then we can um, Interde feel it's interdependent compassion for others right. without being without the um, being bogged down or troubled by um, the uh, uh, clinging that we normally experience. Right. It has to do with interdependence, right? So, yeah, it's understanding emptiness. Right. Or interdependence, right? Yeah, okay. dependent arising, right? Okay, yeah. no, that's helpful. There's something else I was going to ask you. Is one of the four Buddha families the Dharmakaya? Oh uh, no, those are, those are the four bodies of the Buddha. The 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 Buddha families is that's a whole different thing. Okay. All right. Does that relate to the elements, the four elements or five elements? Like the analytical yeah. meditation, does that yeah. get onto if you, the? If you, if you look up, and this is, you can find this online. Um, there have been, I think there were uh, tricycle articles about this. One of the Buddhist magazines, there were some good articles where they review, trying, um, uh, they review, uh, uh, oh, now I'm blanking on the name. Um, anyhow, uh, the prominent, uh, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings on um, the Buddha families, and they will give you a chart of, you know, the characteristics, the right, elements, right, the colors, the colors the, all of all that, chakras, yeah, all that kind of yeah. Thing, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Thank you, Daryl. Sure. <laughs> something that's been a little bit of a hang-up for me for a long time and that is the difference between saying uh, something is a dream versus something is dreamlike. Um, what my hang-up is, is is I think that uh, those terms are sometimes tossed around interchangeably and to say that um, our normal everyday walking around naive reality is actually a dream to say it's no different than a dream because I've heard that said also. Yeah. Um, my hang-up is if I'm being mindful about my waking life and being mindful about my dream state, uh, it doesn't compute in the sense that, well, I can't fly now, okay? Yeah. I can't uh, fend off bullets with, you know. Right. I can do a lot of things in my dream that I can't do when I'm walking yeah. around now. It also occurs to me, if I'm being mindful about my dream states, that my dream states are pretty fraught with ego stuff. Um, you know, I'm still selfish in my dreams. I'm still, it's all about me. Um, I'm on stage. I'm doing this wonderful thing. And, and so I guess for me, my resolution, for what it's worth, is to be uh, a little more picky about saying dream-like rather than no different than a dream or anything yeah. like that. To me, that means, okay, the, um, the coming together of the various states of consciousness we have, the absolute and relative bodhicitta and so forth, is illusory. It's dreamlike and so forth. But anyhow, that helped me resolve that little bit of a... Sure. I mean, we can't, we can't say that our waking experience is a dream. Dreaming is what happens at night when we're asleep. But we can say it has certain characteristics that are similar to a dream. And so in both dreaming and waking life, we know that 
our experience is constantly changing and impermanent. And in dreaming and waking life, we know that our experience is um, completely mental. And in dreaming and waking life, we also know that our experience is completely personal, um, internal. So that's, that's really what's being said. So we're not trying to, we're not trying to um, project or impute some quality on life, on waking life that is not there. What we're doing is saying, let's look for ourselves and see how it really is. And when we look, we will see that, yes, it has these qualities that are very dreamlike. And that's helpful for us to see, because we obviously want to see how things really are. And when we see, when we can appreciate emptiness or um, how things really are, then this actually develops our compassion, because we're letting go of the causes of clinging, and we're also able to see how everyone else is is trapped in suffering that really is unnecessary. And so it's a natural, it's a natural result of understanding emptiness that compassion arises. We want to help others. We see them suffering, and we, we see there's no need. Um, so that's, that's kind of what it's about. Yeah, yeah, because again, we're not projecting or imputing anything. We're, we're simply looking. It's clear looking. And, and we're not expecting to find something. We're just looking and, and, and finding. Or in this case, not finding. What we find is a not finding. That kind of answered my question. Oh, OK. What you just, yeah. OK, kinda, OK. I think that makes sense to what I. <laughs> OK, well, good. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're not we're not projecting anything. We're just looking and looking at what we find. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Did all of that make sense to everybody? Okay. Well, let's um, take a moment to silently dedicate the merit. Um, through our being here, listening to the teachings and contemplating them, may all of us generate a sincere aspiration to tame the mind, wake up, and liberate others. May we establish and maintain a daily meditation practice. May our daily practice gradually lead us to complete Buddhahood. And having attained Buddhahood, May we manifest in order to guide all beings to liberation from suffering.